0: I'm Mike Kozer, and this is Lost Ballparks. Join us now for another Brooklyn ball game here at Ebbets Field, Brooklyn, USA. Greetings, baseball fans. This is Mel Allen greeting you from Yankee Stadium in New York City. Hello, everyone. With Bob Prince and Nellie King, this is Gene Osbert
1: speaking to you from Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. Well, friends, here we are back at the Polo Grounds in New York City. We're underway in the first of a twilight double at Tiger Stadium. Just the start of things. So, pull up a comfortable chair. If you want to take your shoes off, go ahead. Wiggle your toes, and we hope you'll have a cold shave for two throughout the evening.
0: In 1969, Major League Baseball added four teams. The San Diego Padres, the Kansas City Royals, the Montreal Expos, and the Seattle Pilots. The Pilots who played their home games at Six Stadium were a colorful team. And their history, though short, was so memorable that 53 years later, we're still talking about it. On today's episode of the Lost Ballparks podcast, Kenny Mayne, longtime ESPN sports anchor, joins us to talk about what it was like to take in a game at Six Stadium in 1969 sit in the bleachers and cheer for his hometown Seattle Pilots.
1: That speaks, that feels more like 1950s over 1960s. Kenny Maine. What's happening? So in
0: 1968, you're eight years old living in Seattle and you find out that your hometown is getting a Major League Baseball team. The Seattle Pilots will begin play at Six Stadium in 1969. When you find out, are you, as a kid, just absolutely euphoric?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was playing, you know, Little League Baseball. I was never very good at baseball, to be honest. I could throw And I was a hustler, you know, diving around, but I couldn't hit to save my life. Only thing I could ever do is play football, throw footballs. But I was definitely excited. I was probably, you know, getting cut and sent down to minor B or whatever they called it at the time. But at the same time, too, when you're little, you know, we thought we had a big city. We thought Seattle had like four tall buildings and we thought it was a big city. So you were accepting of all these things that came in your life, like, oh, so now we have a baseball team. It wasn't like shocking, more, oh, cool, we got a baseball team to go along with our basketball team because the Sonics came in 67. So it was all right around the same time period.
0: Right. Not only do you get a home team to cheer for, but I imagine I would be thinking about all of the players that I'm going to be able to see in person, Mantle, Yastrzemski, Carew, Reggie Jackson, Brooks and Frank Robinson, Killabrew Killebrew. Are you thinking about that as a kid? Does that occur to you? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I knew because I followed, you know, from reading the papers or the little you got to see it on TV, the, what was it, the Saturday game of the week. NBC Sports presents Baseball's Game of the Week. But yeah, we we knew about these other stars. You know, you heard about the Yankees. My cousin was a big Yankees fan, so he'd given me the whole history of the 50s and 60s Yankees. And no, it seemed like a damn big deal. And the funny thing is we kind of knew the field we were going to play in was second rate. We just knew. I mean, we weren't dumb. Like, you know, it was a minor league ballpark and they were trying to make it be a major league ballpark. They were pounding in seats the day of the first game, you know? So we kind of knew we were small time joining a big time thing and it was kind of cool just to be involved.
0: Yeah. I remember hearing that there were construction crews in the outfield bleachers attaching (laughs) sections of bleacher. And once one would be completed, they would let like 20 more people in.
1: Yeah, I I didn't know it was that literal. I thought they might have wrapped it up, you know, before the gates open. But I've seen the pictures. It's pretty crazy. I don't I don't know who was in charge of the timing for that. You'd think there'd be some safety issues as well, like it had a right. pass inspection. But right, they were literally trying to add on and build out the place. Um, you know, right day of the first game, and it's funny. All the many years later, I ran into a guy who is sort of a collector of different sports memorabilia and he ended up with a lot of the benches from the old sick stadium i think they were shipped off to alaska or something I, you know some holding storage facility he found out about it and bought a bunch then i somehow heard about the fact he was holding on to these so at my house i have a couple of these old wooden you know beat up benches that were on the mezzanine they weren't they weren't the seats to sit in to watch the game but they were like the seats you might sit down and you know have something to eat as you're walking down the way.
0: Oh, how great and, is that!
1: But it's really cool. I mean, that's a little piece of my childhood. I I remember one of the things that stood out to me. My favorite player was Tommy Harper,
0: fleet-footed Tommy Harper, never given a chance to run with a previous team, became the most exciting ball player in contemporary Seattle history.
1: And he led the American League in stolen bases with 73 that year. And just for whatever reason, I loved his play. I loved his hustle. He, you know, he 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 had a personality. And I got his baseball card. I remember I'd play with it in my back pocket. Like that was going to bring me good luck, you know, during my little league games that year. Did so were I did it. I was close. Nah, I was still terrible, but you're hitting bombs. Yeah, not exactly. I was, I probably went to 30 games. My sister dated, you know, the, the high school star athlete and they would go on dates. And my mom, I think would make her take me along, but I, I probably went to like, 25 30 games. That's a lot of that's a lot of games for anybody, especially if you're 9 years old.
0: Right. So you're not a casual fan. I mean, like you're fully in on the Seattle Pilots. Do you we remember were. what do you remember what car you guys drove? What what did you take? <laughs>
1: uh he was borrowing his the, the thing I remember most about the trip was how you'd cut off. The freeway wasn't fully built out with all the different exits it has now in Seattle. You have to get off a little early and drive up kind of a a different road that led you into it um and there was a McDonald's I think the McDonald's is still there. There was a McDonald's. We'd, you know, more often than not stop, have a hamburger before we walked in and park kind of down the way that way. And now the place is, I believe, a Lowe's Home Improvement, if I'm not mistaken. It's yeah. a, a store like that. They have the, allegedly, where Home Plate once was, they have that, you know, over in the paint aisle. So the place is remembered. But no, I... I remember going to dozens of games. I remember one that got called for the old American League curfew. I believe it was 1 a.m., and they had to continue the game the next day.
0: <laughs> okay, so the first time you go into Six Stadium, uh, I imagine you were there because it was a minor league ballpark, as you said, with for the Seattle Rainiers and also the Seattle Angels from 1938 to 1968. But the first time you're walking in that park going to see your major league team, the Seattle Pilots, Uh, They opened up against the White Sox, I think, on April 11th. But when you got to go see them for the first time, what was that like, that experience? Like, okay, this is our team.
1: Yeah, there was kind of a sense of wonder about, you know, wow, we're actually in the American League. We're part of Major League Baseball. But even though it was pretty humble surroundings where we're playing the game and all, that didn't really phase us. It was more just like, oh, this is pretty cool. We have a Major League Baseball team now. We just quickly accepted that we're in it. We knew we were kind of like, uh, you know, the weak sister, one of them in the league. And we knew we had a deficient looking stadium, but we didn't care because we were in it. You know, we, who cares? We're, we're part of the show at this point. Had no idea whatsoever it was only going to last one year, right? When you're that young, you're not, I'm not thinking about any of the politics or the finances, or whatever. Although I did know it was going on for some reason. I I mean, you know, we got the paper at home, so I was reading the stories and knew about you know, some of the finances were shaky, but I didn't know they were so shaky that the next year they wouldn't stay around.
0: Yeah. I, so I was watching the Beatles documentary this weekend. For those who haven't seen it, it's this incredible behind the scenes studio footage shot in January of 1969 of John, Paul, George, and Ringo making the Lit Be" album. It's really a fascinating and humanizing look into, into this band as they make their way toward their final public appearance on the roof of Apple Studios. As I was watching it, I was thinking about all that happened that year. In addition to that, the moon landing. That's one small step for man. Richard Nixon becomes president. I, Richard House Nixon, do solemnly swear. Uh, Woodstock. <music> Debut of Sesame Street, Willie Mays hits a 600th home run.
1: Number 600 for Mays. He hit it over the 370 foot mark.
0: Major League Baseball expands with four new franchises, the Padres, the Expos, the Royals, and the Pilots. But this was a landmark year in American history.
1: Oh, for certain. I remember 20 years later, 89, I'm now working in TV at a little station in Seattle, and I was doing a 20-year look back of these Seattle pilots. I remember my line was something like Americans landed on the moon, the pilots landed in Seattle, they were going places all right. They finished in last. I, I I think I worded it slightly better than that, but that was the crux of it. But yeah, Jimi Hendrix played a concert at Six Stadium that same summer. There's also you like documentaries, Summer of Soul, which Questlove made the documentary of. That there was this incredible concert. Uh, I think it was over a week long period in Harlem that happened at the same time as Woodstock, but you know didn't get the same notice. So all these years later, all these incredible artists that were there, you know, doing the same thing they were doing at Woodstock, but different kind of music. And so, yeah, it was momentous. Like you said, Nixon came in, the moon landing. There was, you know, the Vietnam protests and all the things happening culturally otherwise. So and the funny thing is, I was really aware of the news as a young person. My parents were directed that way. We had the evening news on every night. We read the papers. We talked about it. So I was kind of hip to what was going on in the world more than I think most nine year olds. and. I knew at the time, incredible what was already happening, right? And so we were living through, and I was at a very young age seeing all this stuff happen, seeing all the changes in the country, and at the same time had this, you know, little piece of Americana, this new baseball team in Seattle.
0: So April eighth, nineteen sixty nine, and actually, so that's the first day the Pilots play. They were in uh, Anaheim, taking on the Angels, about to play their first game in franchise history. In the booth that day, there was a broadcaster about to call his very first game. It was the first Major League broadcast of Dick Enberg's legendary career.
1: Good evening, everyone. and uh, I just hope the words arrive in time for the opening pitch. I suppose there are many fans listening right now who held a lifetime ambition to be a Major League Baseball player. I was one of them. Don was one. And Don has been with baseball, Major League Baseball for 20 years. I'm a 34-year-old rookie, and I have to be the most excited man in the ballpark. This is a dream come true, and I'm pleased to have the opportunity provided by Gene Autry. Jim McLaughlin to pitch for the Angels. Tom Satriano down in his crouch to give the sign. Nestor Shylock, the plate umpire, says play ball to wind up the pitch. And Tommy Harper lines one foul down the right field line, and the 1969 Angels season is alive.
0: Pretty crazy, huh? Did you realize that?
1: That's pretty cool. Dick, he's a legend.
0: Loved listening to him.
1: So he said he was 34 starting that. I wonder what he was doing before that. That's how old I was when I got my first ESPN job. So I had been working in the Seattle area, ended up leaving that job on kind of short notice, did a bunch of odd jobs trying to get by as I was freelancing, trying to get on. But that's funny to hear somebody of his magnitude, you know, saying that on his first day.
0: You know, one of the interesting things is I was going through research looking at at, at Six Stadium, all the different quirks, you know, the shower's not working. Uh, someone said that in the press box, you couldn't flush the toilet until the seventh inning because, because of water pressure. Do you remember I hearing not about
1: know that? that one. I knew about the bad showers and the yeah. other teams complaining. Um, and sometimes they, you know, just get on the bus and, you know, go shower at their hotel wherever they stayed. But yeah, we heard the stories. It came out. There were complaints, especially the big-time teams like the, you know, the Yankees and the Orioles were really good back in those days. So I think we heard it and ignored it. Like, whatever, man. We'll, we'll get in a better stadium one day. And there were all these proposals to try to do something bigger and better. I, I remember uh, – I mean, that's how it ultimately came out, right, is after the team left, they they built the kingdom and had to sue uh, Baseball American League, you know, for the right to get a new team like – we had been deprived of a team who took our team before we had a chance to build our stadium was kind of the argument. You know, when you were playing that old clip, it just reminded me of some other archival things. I remember, I met a guy named Bill Sears, who was their PR guy, and he owned the tape that was kind of like their, what they call in the NFL now, the NFL yearbook, you know, looking back at the previous season. So the pilots kind of had their own version of that. And it's, it's crazy seeing the, some of the original stuff. They had a welcoming parade for the team
0: they were to come home to a gala welcome at the airport press radio and television swarmed about the pilots as though they were home from their first world series victory general manager marvin milks and television star bridget hanley led the procession of celebrities as the caravan of cars began assembling to transport seattle's new heroes to a big downtown reception
1: so connected to my childhood like when i think of seattle you know i think of the world's fair i was like three years old Sixty-two. Sixty-two. My dad took yeah. me on a helicopter, and and I remember that vividly. Still, I was three years old, but I, I can remember being with him. That's probably my first memory, actually. And you know, the Space Needle was built, and the Coliseum, which is now the Climate Pledge Arena that, that they redid, and the fountain, and the all the different, the food court, all these different places that have just kind of been in my life since a very very young age. And Six Stadium was on the other side of town, but still kind of part of the same era for me. So all these things, that song. Seeing the Smith Tower, my favorite building, it it makes you feel good because it's comfortable. It's stuff you know and stuff you grew up with.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the pilots finished the 1969 season with 98 losses. The crazy part was that in 1970, the pilots actually go to Tempe for spring training and they're still the Seattle pilots, right? At least for a few days.
1: Yeah, well, the story I always went with, and, and at least the way it was what I remember from reading it at the time... Was they stayed the pilots throughout, and at the end of the spring training, all the equipment was going to be driven back, and the 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 people in charge of the trucks were supposed to stop somewhere and make a phone call, and either head north and west or or north and east to Milwaukee, and that's when it all went down. They got the call, and they ended up, we're we're no longer going to Seattle. We're now on the way to Milwaukee. Yeah,
0: and I so remember was- the catcher, is it Jerry McNerney?
1: Jerry McNertney.
0: Jerry McNertney, an experienced, intelligent catcher. Yeah, who said, wait a second, I got all my stuff in Seattle. He left yeah. it there from the season before and was planning on coming back. And it's like, well, how do I get my stuff?
1: Yeah, You didn't You didn't have the same, uh, you know, overnight transportation services that I'm not sure how many goods he left or if he thought he had a house he was renting or, you yeah. know, I mean, there are all sorts of those kind of problems. All of it or so much of it was detailed in Jim Bowden's book, Ball Four. Yeah, great um, book. Which I, you know, as a, I think I read it the next year, so that was like, you know, something most people had to sneak. I think my parents were okay with it; they knew what it was about. Um, some of it was a little R-rated for a ten-year-old's ten-year-old's maturity level, but there's so many just fun memories of the individual players and so many really good players that were actually on the team. I mean, Tommy Davis, who led the National League in hitting a couple times uh, for the Dodgers, was on our team. Ended up trading him away. Uh, Lou Piniella was part of it very briefly. I don't think he ever really was on it. I think he was just drafted.
0: Spring training in 69, he was there. He gets shipped off for a couple, like I think Steve Whitaker, maybe a couple guys who really didn't have a huge impact. And Lou Piniella goes on to win Rookie of the Year for the Royals and you think, well, you know, how much better could the team
1: have been had they kept Lou Piniella? Oh, for sure. There's a guy who used to work at ESPN and he had this nerdy love of baseball because I don't think I really have it. I mean, I like the game, but only with the pilots do I kind of have this weird fascination where it still matters in my life all these years later. And we would play, we called call it Name That Pilot. You'd name a name. The other guy would have 30 seconds. He'd have to name a name. And I, I'm a little rusty. I haven't played the game in a while. But there, there's so many that just easily can be remember. Steve Hovley and Mike he- Hegan. And you mentioned McNurtney, And there was Don Mincher.
0: Don Mincher, an all-star first baseman with the Minnesota Twins and the California Angels.
1: Marty Patton, a pitcher. Gene Brabender, another pitcher. We had a guy named Gus Gill. John Donaldson, I believe, was second base. I already mentioned Tommy Harper and Tommy Davis. Wayne Comer in center field. Uh, you mentioned Whitaker previously. I forget any other catcher.
0: Barber, who was always in the whirlpool. Never quite. His arm was <laughs> his arm was and, never quite ready.
1: And, of course, Jim Bouton. Then you had Joe Schultz with his famous swear word combination that he would do. And then Sal the Barber Magley was the pitching coach.
0: From the New York Giants, yeah. Yeah. And by the way, Ball Ford does such a great job of giving you an understanding of what it was like at that time, not only as a player, but I mean, Joe Schultz is the manager, like his, what is, what's his famous line? Hey guys, let's win this game and go pound some Budweiser.
1: Yeah. Let's catch a real thing, get the hell out of here. He'd go yeah. to the pitcher's mound and just say whatever, but it makes you, even if you weren't from that area or cared about the team or even have heard of that team, there's something about that book that, you know, definitely takes you back to that era and and he explains how small time and the crazy stuff that went on with the players i remember there's a pitcher named fred talbot and they and the pilots i remember the contest you know hearing the games on the radio they had a a thing like a lot of teams do that like a contest if something happens this inning somebody wins a prize you know and theirs was called home run for the money and i think it was typically like five thousand dollars or whatever was in the jackpot but if somebody hit a grand slam the prize was twenty five thousand, which is still a lot of money but in 1969 That'd be like, you know, what, getting 250,000 to theirs, you know, big prize, right? Right. So uh, sure enough, Fred Talbot hits a grand slam and some guy, in, I think Oregon won the money and Jim, I'm pretty sure it was Jim Bouton, or if not, somebody else did it and he- No, told, it was Jim. You know, it was
0: Jim. In fact, I think during the, while he's rounding the bases, he's already concocting the idea.
1: <laughs> so they write, uh, you know, he writes this letter allegedly from the winner down in Oregon thanking him and- and, you know, so appreciative of what you've done for my family. And as, as a thank you, I want to, I forget what number, you know. I think was it was gonna, like
0: 5,000. I was, think it was
1: five also. I was going to say 25 or five. Of course, it was all fake. The money never came. Right. And then I won't even say what Fred Talbot said after he learned it was all fake. But, I mean, there was just so much of that. And it also kind of just his descriptive, you know, terms and what the place was like and the small crowds. And I, I would say, I don't know for sure what the, what the average attendance was. In my head, we supported them pretty well. I'm guessing a lot of the crowds were pretty pretty weak. We'd have to look back at the records on that. And I also have in my head that they weren't horrible the first month and a half two months like no they no were they were very borderline hanging in there right yeah like second,
0: like third they were definitely hanging in there
1: yeah until about probably july and then just fell apart the last few months of the season and you know well then what you time. had
0: you had a whole bunch of injuries and then you've got no uh nobody to come in right like yeah. you've got no guys who are if anybody gets hurt it's one of those things the season's going to go south pretty quickly and that's huh. kind of what happened
1: but all that said it's kind of funny I, I had this conversation i think it was with my wife about, you know, everybody always laments, I wish I weren't as old as I am. I'd rather, you know, have more time and be, you know, you always think about youth, right? But at the same time, if you weren't the age you are, look of all the stuff you would have missed, right? That's, right? That was a pretty cool, in my opinion, time period to be growing up, all those things happening, country, there's some upheaval, but it was exciting. And there was this new growth and a lot of changes and civil rights movement, like all these things were happening at a very young age that I was Paying attention to, I didn't. Kn- I didn't know, you know, every last detail of what was going on, but I certainly knew the generalities of it and what it was like to be feeling it and seeing it. And then soon after, you know, people knocked the seventies. Seventies were also the greatest ten years of music, in my opinion, because you got all the albums Stevie Wonder put out and and so many others. The Beatles you just mentioned were were ending there, but you know, their music carried through that time. So yeah, I don't really regret it, and I and I will never regret all those. Seattle Pilots days and nights. I mean, it was it was a cool experience. Very small time, you know, now having gone to major sporting events all over the world, knowing what it feels like to go to these fancy stadiums. Yeah, but on the
0: other hand, if you were sitting in the grandstand at uh, Six Stadium and looking out uh, across the outfield, what other stadium gives you a view of Mount
1: Rainier? Yeah, it was beautiful. And we had a racetrack called Long Acres down south of there, not too far, that had its amazing views. It's kind of the Santa Anita of the Northwest. so. Yeah, I guess in its own way, sometimes the simple, small-time thing, I can appreciate as much or more.
0: Hey, so like Metropolitan Stadium, Six Stadium, unfortunately, sat abandoned for a few years after um, it was last used. I think it was demolished in 1979. When, it, like, During that period, did you ever drive past and kind of reflect? and?
1: Oh, I definitely went past. Uh, my memory is not good on the timing. I don't remember it staying around that long. In my head, it was wiped out much sooner. If that's if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But, you know, we didn't go. We lived in the south end. So coming up to Seattle was for events, Sonic games. And I wouldn't have necessarily gone over that way that often. But when when we did, absolutely. Any Anytime I get in that general neighborhood, that's the first thing I think of is going back to those pilot games. Is it true that Boog Powell? I got to before we
0: go, I got oh, to hit this. Boog he, <laughs> to, did he? Tell, tell a grand me the slam. Yeah, wait, wait, wait. Tell me the story. What happened?
1: It's a true story. People won't believe it. Boog Powell, you can look him up. And there was another Boog Powell later. Um, but this is the Boog Powell from the Orioles from the 60s. Huge and guy. Big heavy set. You know, I, it looks like he weighs 300 pounds. I don't know what he weighed, but he was big block of a man. You wouldn't expect him to. You know, ever thieve a base or or stretch a single to a double or anything, but Boog Powell literally hit an inside the park home run against the Seattle Pilots. And if you've seen tape of him or pictures, you you would never suspect that he could leg out anything. But what happened? It was one of those liners, I believe, to center. Wayne Comer came in to get it. it goes over his head, and I think it kind of like rolled out, like you know, when you play racquetball or in high lie when the ball, what they call that, a chula, when it rolls out perfectly. And the left and right fielder didn't exactly kill themselves to come and help. So now the ball is behind him in center. I can't remember if Comer went back to get it or somebody from one of the other fields ended up with it. But in any event, by then, you know, Powell's almost a third. (laughs) By the time they make the throw, they do a relay and and the guy gets an inside the park home run. Legitimate one. Because it wasn't like the guy dropped it or missed it. It just, I think it was slightly misplayed, but never touched. I
0: would pay money to see video of him and the dugout afterwards. I mean, you know, today we've got uh, on football sidelines, you've got oxygen, but not not in dugouts, but I bet he could
1: have used some. Oh, for certain. I don't know that Six Stadium would have had that type of equipment, though.
0: <laughs> hey, before I let you go, I want to talk about the organization you're part of, Run Freely. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure.
1: I broke my leg in college football way back when— And, you know, all these years later, 10 surgeries or whatever, and it just wasn't going to get fixed, right? It was just kind of a not functioning very well ankle for life. It was pretty severe. Like I considered, you know, the very worst. Also looked at replacing or fusing. You know, I was kind of looking at all medical options. And the guys at the amputation place said, go get better therapy and go find a brace. Found one brace that worked for a while, but I ran into another. They didn't like to call it a brace. They call it a device. And it's called an exosim. So I stuck the thing on. And not making this up, it feels like one of those infomercials at 3 a.m., but it's true. (laughs) I was on the treadmill running like 15 miles an hour on the very first day. And if I tried to do that just, you know, in tennis shoes with no support, I'd be limping for a week or I might have hurt it worse. So it was in that kind of condition where I couldn't do much without, you know, some kind of assistance. So Gretchen and I, my wife, I think I cried for a couple hours, like couldn't believe, you know, the gift I'd been given. And we both just immediately said, let's do something good with it. So we started a foundation. It's called Run Freely. So it's one big word together, like R-U-N-F-R-E-E-L-Y, run freely dot O-R-G, run dot org. We've just tried to do small little ways to raise money. And sometimes it's just putting out the word. And every time we get to a certain level, we can then, you know, let the next person in line know, okay, we you're ready to go.
0: Yeah, so, anything we can do to help veterans. And this is for uh, those who have come back with like... Um, Limb salvage conditions yeah, right, in need of They don't want to avoid amputation.
1: That's kind of where I was, right? I didn't say the word, but yeah, that's what I was hinting at, that you come to a point where it sucks to even get out of bed in a lot of cases, like you know, you're just hopping to the bathroom. And I'm not in that position now where I get around most days pretty well. I just wear flip flops and slippers and stay out of shoes. But if I'm going to do something athletic, I put on this device. We have other veterans for whom this thing was made. Kind of displaces the pressure off your joint, the offending joint that's not working very well. And then your bad joint is just as long for the ride. You know, this, this thing kind of does the work. Okay, so
0: the website is runfreely.org. And I definitely would encourage folks to check it out because it, uh, you guys are doing great things. Runfreely.org. Kenny Maine, thanks so much for the time, man. It's fun reminiscing and uh, going back in time and talking about the 1969 Seattle pilots. I enjoyed it. Likewise. Thank you so much. All right, have a great day. Thank you. Appreciate you. And just to tie a bow on the Seattle Pilots story, uh, the team moved to Milwaukee after the '69 season and became the Milwaukee Brewers. Ball 4, the book written by Seattle Pilots pitcher Jim Boughton that Kenny and I referenced is available at Amazon.com. It does a great job chronicling the '69 season. Okay, our thanks to Kenny, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Lost Ballparks podcast. A reminder, if you haven't already, subscribe for free on the podcast platform of your choice, Apple, Spotify, so you don't miss an episode. Next week on the Lost Ball Parks podcast, I'll be talking to Nancy Faust. For 40 years, she was the organist for the Chicago White Sox, spending much of her career at Comiskey Park. Next week, and I am so excited about this, Nancy will join me from her organ playing fan favorites from those years in Chicago. Nancy is a Chicago legend, an institution, and she'll be my guest next week on Lost Ball Parks. See you then.